Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Certainly, it's hard to think of uh, a more consequential situation in recent memory when it comes to Canada-China relations than the situation with the two Michaels which, of course, uh, followed the arrest in Canada of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. Clearly, the uh, arrest, the detention of the two Michaels was in retaliation to that. Uh, But there is a bigger story here in terms of Canada-China relations. How it got to that point and what the fallout from all of this is likely to be. It is the subject of an important new book. It is called The Two Michaels, Innocent Canadian Captives and High-Stakes Espionage in the U.S.-China Cyber War. Joining us this afternoon is uh, one of the co-authors of this book, Mike Blanchfield, the international affairs writer for the Canadian Press based in Ottawa. Mike, so great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure to be here. Well, of course, the two Michaels are back home. They are, are safe and sound back here in Canada. But obviously, there, there's a lot to learn about this whole situation, why it came about in the first place. Uh, what got you and uh, your co-author, Fenn Osler-Hampson from uh, Carleton University, uh, interested in, in telling this story? Well, Rob, um, as you mentioned off the top, I'm a reporter at the Canadian Press, and I cover international relations. And so um, I was covering this story pretty much from day one as a news reporter. Uh, right after the arrest of Meng, uh, in, the, in the interim days when we were wondering, is there going to be uh, another shoot to drop which did. Uh, and um, so I was basically on the story for quite a while, and uh, Fen and I spoke about um, wanting to do sort of a broader story to, about why this happened, uh, a book. Uh, Fen was very, very seized with this idea. He's in, you know, uh, an international relations specialist. He's written numerous books. He's a professor... Uh, you know, he's been the chair of an international commission that studied the internet um, a few years ago. So we um, we decided to pool um, our, our pool our forces. Basically, I'm a I'm a, I'm a reporter journalist who covered the story, We've talked to lots of people involved in it, uh, all sides of it, and uh, so we came together about a year ago and started working on the book. And we wanted to do this. Um, get it done quickly because when we started on the book, it didn't look like the two Michaels were going to be coming home anytime soon or that mm-hmm. Meng's case would be resolved in the British Columbia court. So we, we thought, well, let's write a book. Let's get what we know on the record. Let's put it out there for Canadians and as many people as possible. And maybe it'll stimulate some discussion. Uh, it'll um, remind people of why this is happening and, and who knows. But, uh, but, but just as we were finishing, literally going to press with the book, um, the issue got dramatically resolved, as we all saw a couple months ago. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. And, and I think now we know their names, we know their faces. Let's talk about, you know, in the lead up to December of 2018, when their lives changed forever. Uh, did they know each other? What were they involved in doing? To what extent were they on China's radar? 
Well, they were both active in China in different ways. Uh, Michael Kovrig uh, was a Canadian, is still a Canadian diplomat. He was on a leave of absence from the federal government to work for a, an organization called the International Crisis Group, which studies conflict around the world. They write reports, they talk to people, and they try to find ways to peacefully solve the world's problems. And so Kovrig had spent uh, a, a number of years as a seasoned Canadian diplomat. He'd been posted to China previously as well. And he was on his way from Hong Kong and had arrived in China to do more research. He talked to Chinese officials. He got the Chinese side of the story. He wrote, uh, you know, contributed to this, um, to this, uh, you know, institute that, uh, you know, tried to basically make the world a safer place. He was a, he was a peacemaker, a writer is, I assume. Uh, Michael, Michael Spaver was, um, um, he's just a really interesting sort of entrepreneur, I guess, is the label people put on him, and that's what we call him. But he's a, he's, he's, a, he's born, born in Calgary, basically became fascinated with, uh, with uh, the Korean Peninsula at a, at a young age, moved to North Korea, uh, traveled there, uh, and eventually spent extended amounts of time there, set up uh, a consultancy in, uh, in a Chinese city, uh, Dandong, near the North Korean border, and did a lot of uh, exchanges of people and and basically facilitating trade, uh, p- not trade because there's none, but uh, just just people traveling back and forth to North Korea because he just, you know, as it's been as it's described in the book and as he has said publicly before all of this and, pe- and the people who know him, he just basically fell in love with the people, the country. Uh, he got to know Kim Jong Kim Jong Un, the, the the dictator pres- leader of North Korea, in a very dramatic trip in 2013 he uh Kovrig was uh, sorry Spavor was basically the fixer for uh former NBA basketballer um Dennis Rodman uh wild crazy ex-basketballer tattooed right. uh outspoken yeah. uh wanted to go to North Korea and visit them um, <laughs> and visit the power and he did and Michael Michael Spavor was in the middle of this he had the connections he speaks fluent uh, fluent um Korean, by all accounts, and he made this happen. He's the fixer. He was kind of the guy in the middle of it all, making it happen. And he met, um, you know, he, he was, you know, posted on Instagram, you know, having drinks on the uh, North Korean leaders' um, um, yachts. It was, it was just, it was almost surreal. Uh, anyway, so both these men had, uh, you know, by all accounts, uh, Spaver wasn't a political person. He, uh, he he just was really interested in this place. He was hoping to be on sort of the the ground floor. I think if um, if one day North Korea somehow opened up to the world, if it's, there was reform in some way, people could go in, make business. He wanted to do business. He was plugged in on the ground, and uh, and he and many many times he demonstrated. He wrote and talked about a genuine affection for the North Korean people. So Meng Wanzhou was arrested in December of 2018. It's nine days, eight or nine days later, uh, when the two Michaels are arrested. Was there a specific reason why China targeted these two? Well, China says that they were spies. And Kovrig and Spaver and everyone around them and Canadian governments and Canadian Western allies say they weren't. Um, so, but as, you know, as, as, we, as we know, they, I mean, they lived interesting lives and they were connected to the region and uh, so the, it's you know the, the west and the the, the families of, of these men and just about everyone who is not part of the chinese government has viewed this as a, a, a arbitrary retaliation a tit for tat um 
basically, you know, in a hostage taking to put leverage on Canada to um, end the Meng extradition case, which came about because the Americans enforced an extradition treaty with Canada, a legal instrument, and said, hey, this this person is passing through at the Vancouver airport. Where we want to charge her and put her on trial in the United States for fraud, please arrest her for us, and uh, we'll begin the extradition proceedings to have her brought to the United States. And that enraged the Chinese government. Meng is, um, she's the daughter of the founder of Huawei, who is um, basically a, na- a national icon in, in China. Uh, uh, she's considered sort of um, business royalty, and uh, the Chinese the, you know, the, Chi- the Chinese government um, blew a gasket uh, and said, you can't do this. They were enraged. And then nine days later, uh, two Canadians are in prison. Yeah, and it wasn't just that she was facing charges. I mean, Huawei itself is is still facing uh, fraud charges in the United States. And so so this all becomes very strategic as we look at the future of the Internet and the future of 5G. And it's still a looming decision for Canada with regard to Huawei and 5G. So uh, aside from obviously yeah. Meng Wanzhou's profile in China, what was so strategic uh, to China and China's interests about this whole situation? Well... The, the, the U.S. government, 10 years before this, going back to the Obama administration, identified Huawei and its, um, its, its reach and its, um, its ability to uh, deliver 5G Internet. Uh, they, they see that as a security threat. They say that Huawei is linked to the Chinese military uh, and that, the, that if Huawei you know, establishes the 5G networks of the Internet that we're all going to rely on, very soon and are already, but the Internet of the future, the Internet of Things, it's called, it, you know, could power autonomous vehicles, all kinds of right. all kinds of stuff, artificial intelligence. That this is this will somehow be connected to the somehow connected to the Chinese military. They'll have a back door. They'll be able to control the Internet in in, in the Western world, or they'll be able to shut it down, or shut down banking, or whatever. Anyway. Bottom line, the Americans saw this as a, as a strategic threat. Um, Donald Trump came along, carried on the same policy. Um, but instead of going after the company itself and charging it and trying to shut it down and perhaps cripple it economically, um, on you know the Trump administration decided to arrest this person, this top executive, and personalize the case. And just one more thing, too, it's very important. The Chinese completely deny this. They say there's no way we're going to do this. Uh, and they accuse the Americans of basically just trying to cripple a, a, a top Chinese telecom company that is cornering the market on delivering you know, 5G Internet and the Internet of the future. Yeah. Well, and it sort of highlights what's been a, a long time dynamic between Canada and the U.S. and Canada and China. I think our approach to China over the years, uh, even going back over the last three decades, has differed from the, the Americans' approach. But at the same time, I mean, that, that relationship between Canada and the United States is close and is crucial. What, what does this tell us about, you know, how Canada is maybe uh, at odds at times when it comes to uh, China as far as the Americans are concerned? Um. I think the, the the big lesson that this that, that could be drawn from this uh, on, on that point is um, when this happened, Canada was very much alone on the world stage. They were a small country. They were, yes, they were acting on behalf of their American friend and ally, um, but there wasn't a lot of initial support from the Trump administration about the predicament. It was nothing publicly said. Donald Trump was sort of browbeaten by a group of shouting Canadian reporters in the White House in 2019. I was there. I was one of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a G20 summit coming, and Xi Jinping, the 
president of China was going to be there. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was going to be going, and and we were shouting, you know, we we're shouting questions. It was one of these vintage Trump photo ops that's supposed to be, you know, a few minutes, and it turned into a, a fifteen-minute press conference in the Oval Office with the Canadian side shouting questions: Are you going to go to bat for Canada? Are you going to help talk to the Chinese and help get these guys out? And Trump just at one point sort of shrugged and said, "It's all in the book, you know, word for word." He basically said, "Yeah," said something along the lines of, "Yeah, I'll see what I can do." And it was never really clear what he did or how hard he tried. Uh, what changed is when the Biden administration came, Joe Biden and, uh, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau met very early on uh, in 2021 after he was inaugurated. And Biden basically said, these guys are American. We consider these people American citizens and they're bartering ships. And uh, But it took eight months for them to, to get to the point where they took the necessary step of withdrawing the, the actual charges against her. And as you alluded to earlier, they're proceeding against the company, uh, and so they, they, they did this deferred prosec- prosecution agreement, DPA. So the Americans dropped the charges in a Brooklyn court against Ming three hours later in a Vancouver courtroom after years of extradition hearings and volumes and reams of you know, evidence being presented and just you know, a massive amount of, of time spent in court. A Canadian you know, prosecutor acting on behalf of the Americans goes before a senior judge of the British Columbia Superior Court and says, yeah, well, we're withdrawing the charge. Thank you very much. And three hours later, uh, you know, Meng is on her way, to, on her way to, to China, and the two Michaels are on a plane crisscrossing the, you know, on their way back to Canada uh, across the Pacific Ocean. It was, the planes took off like literally at the same time. Yeah, it was quite remarkable how it all played out. Now, you know, I mean, more or less American policy has not changed. Canada's in, in a situation now where I think we need to decide on our, our policy direction. Maybe the situation with the two Michaels sort of led to, you know, inaction. We were kind of frozen just out of concern for them. Where do you think this all goes from Canada's perspective now? Yeah, very much so. It was kind of in um, in the... Uh, I guess limbo is, is a good enough to, uh, no shorthand mm-hmm. for it. Uh, but I mean, the first thing they have to do, Canada's got to do, is decide on their 5G policy, who the 5G um, partners will be, and basically exclude Huawei. But I mean, the, the market on this has already decided. Huawei isn't selling anything in Canada anymore. Uh, other companies, of um, European companies, have, uh, have partnered with Canadian providers. Um, you know, Huawei equipment is being you know, stripped out of the networks. The market has spoken in Canada. It just needs to be a political decision to say we're going to join our top allies in the intelligence uh, Five Eyes network. You know, the United States, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, who are all have all turned off Huawei uh, and, uh, and saying we're done. That's the immediate thing. The long term is, um, I mean, Canada is very much going to be engaging with China because every country has to engage politically with China. But I think it will be less ambitious and more uh, selective. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge market. It's a manufacturing giant. It's, uh, it can't be ignored. On the other hand, um, the Americans want to see sort of a more of a firm China policy, I think, from Canada. They want to see a clearer statement. They want to see something, you know, a, a clear direction stated because, you know, they want Canada on side, and they were so entwined in this whole issue. Uh, and the other thing for Canada right now, independent of that, is the, a real concerted effort to uh, make trade deals with other Asian um, you know, Asian countries and trading blocs. Just last uh, few weeks ago, uh, you know, Canada announced that they were uh, entering free trade talks with a, with a block, block of Asian countries called ASEAN, and, and it's got, that, that includes three big countries, Indonesia, Thailand, and the Philippines. 
that can broaden Canada's you know, trade um, you know, ability to, to uh, you know, to, to, to trade with beyond, you know, other treaties we've gotten and other, through other alliances with South Korea, Japan, um, and of course, you know, with our North American, uh, you know, neighbors and we have our European free trade deal. So it's this whole, like, diversification. Uh, don't rely yeah. so much on China. Try to be more resilient. Try to be, try to build more things in North America. That was all, that was the whole theme of this, you know, Three Amigos Summit with the Mexicans, the Americans, and Canadians just just a couple of weeks ago, but, you know, how can we do it within North America better? Be you know less vulnerable to outside forces, and that's you know it's just it's not uh, China cannot be ignored. It's too big. Uh, it's gonna it's always going to be there. We're all, people will need to do business with them. Countries will always be able will have to, but it doesn't mean they're the only sort of vendor customer you know trade opportunity out there anymore. If you want to hear more. Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.